This is episode number 209, Dr. Michael Gervais and the Mental Skills of High Performance. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Confidence is a skill. We can train it, and you train it by being aware of how you're appraising the external, how you're appraising your internal, and then finding ways to challenge both of them. And if you do that on a regular basis, you got something. And the only place confidence comes from is self-talk, what you say to yourself. That's kind of the keyhole to confidence is what do you say to yourself? And if you're faking it, it's going to get found out. It's hard to believe how fast the summer has gone by. I actually thought that it would be going by a bit slower because there aren't any races and we've been traveling way, way, way less. But actually, it seems like it's still been going by fast. It's also really crazy that my son is already five months old. He just turned five months old a few days ago. And if you're interested in the entire journey of being a pregnant athlete, how much I trained, the anxieties and mental struggles I went through with identity and having to change how my day-to-day was while I was pregnant, and also postpartum, getting back to sport, getting back to, quote, race fitness, and how I now manage my time with a baby. I've been sharing it all, and I've been doing a lot on my blog, which is sonyalooney.com slash blog, and I've been recording a once-a-month podcast series that comes out the first podcast, which is every Thursday of every month, and usually my husband joins me. We answer your questions, which you can send me at sonya at sonyalooney.com or also through social media. I also recently went on the Trainer Roads Successful Athletes podcast where we talked about a lot of different things from prioritization to time management to not feeling guilty for getting out and doing your sport whenever you have a baby or a child. I'll put that in the show notes as well if you want to listen to my Trainer Road Successful Athletes podcast where I was a guest. And speaking of guests, I am super excited about today's podcast guest, I'm a big longtime fan of Dr. Michael Gervais. He's one of my personal heroes in the arena of mindset and psychology. He frequently talks about the importance of self-discovery and our own inner lives, being aware of and training our inner narrative and the power of vulnerability. Over the course of 20 years working with world-leading performers, Dr. Gervais has developed a psychological framework that allows people to thrive in pressure-packed environments. His clientele is pretty impressive. It consists of the NFL's Seattle Seahawks, countless Olympic medalists across multiple sports, MVPs from every major sport, world record holders, internationally acclaimed music artists, and corporate leaders. He is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Finding Mastery, that explores the psychology of some of the world's most extraordinary thinkers and doers. And the way that Dr. Michael Gervais asks questions and gets the most out of his guests is very impressive and very helpful for the listener. Something that Dr. Gervais talks about a lot is that you can train three things, your craft, your body, and your mind. And Dr. Gervais and NFL coach Pete Carroll founded Compete to Create, which is an online and live masterclass for the mind. And last month in 2020, they also came out with the Audible original called Compete to Create. And it's really awesome. I enjoyed it. And I also listened to it twice. That's how useful I found it. And it comes with these great PDFs that help you figure out your personal philosophy, that help you with confidence, building trust in yourself, finding a good level of emotional activation so that you can perform, and so much more. In fact, we are going to be giving away one entry to the Compete to Create 8-week course on social media. So make sure that you're following at Sonia Looney one on Instagram and that you're subscribed to my newsletter, which is at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter because I will be announcing it there. And before we get a little bit deeper about what today's podcast is about, I want to thank our sponsor, SaneBox. How many times have you opened up your inbox and felt completely overwhelmed because there's so much stuff in there and it's hard to sift through and figure out what's important? 
Well, I started using SaneBox a couple of weeks ago, and I was a little bit unsure if it was going to be helpful because it uses AI to try and sort through newsletters and things that need replies later versus important emails for now. And it actually puts them into folders for you. And then you can actually train it so that it knows where to send future emails. And it's been awesome. It's really helped me with my focus with email. It's basically whenever I open up my main inbox, I see the things that just need to be addressed now. And it takes away the distractions of all the additional things that I might want to look at, but I don't want to take up the mental space whenever I'm trying to answer emails and get sucked down the rabbit hole. Another thing about it is whenever you start using certain email programs or just online plugins, it's really hard to figure out how they work. And SaneBox does a great job to walk you through how to use their product. It's not overwhelming and it's really clear and easy to use. If you want to check it out, there's a link in the show notes. Visit them at SaneBox.com. And if you use SaneBox.com slash Sonia to sign up, they offer a 14-day free trial. And if you use my referral link, which is SaneBox.com slash Sonia, you'll get a $25 credit applied after the 14-day free trial. And I think that you'll find that you'll want to keep going, that it's really useful and helpful in this madness of the email landscape. So back to today's episode where you are going to learn really important and actionable ear nuggets. Things like the importance of relationships, especially when life gets busy, emotional activation for optimal performance, even at the Olympics, training confidence as a skill. And confidence is something we have all struggled with in one way or another. You can be confident in one area of your life and not in another. Confidence can wax and wane. So that's why it's so important to train it. And in order to train it, you have to learn how to be unbiased about your own personal self-assessments and your self-talk. We talked about if confidence or vulnerability comes first, the difference between self-trust and confidence, and so much more. So let's get into this really interesting episode with Dr. Michael Gervais. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gervais. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's such a huge honor to get to talk to you. I've been a massive fan of your work and everything that you do. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you for sure. Yeah. So if people aren't familiar, we're we're obviously talked about you in the intro, but your Finding Mastery podcast is absolutely incredible. And you've talked to so many different people from that podcast. What's been the most important thing you've learned about yourself through your podcast interviews? Uh, Good question. So It's so easy to talk about what I've learned from them, but what I've learned about myself is a couple of things. One is I've been hunting, I guess is a fair way to say it, I've been hunting down the right lane, meaning that nothing has been incredibly surprising, which uh, if I'm not careful, almost sounds like, oh, okay, so he knew it all. It's not that. It's that there's not necessarily this radically different idea about what it takes to get better at getting better. You know, there are a handful of consistent practices. But for me, it's really about, oh, that's right. Keep staying the course, keep learning, keep being open. And the value of that has, for me in my life, paid dividends. And I'd say the one note that is fundamentally different than when I first started is that I'm so much more clear about the importance of people in each other's lives to go the distance, to explore potential. And if I double click underneath of that is oftentimes I've thought about that in terms of my professional community. And I'm recalibrating that it really starts at home for me. And so it's the relationship with my wife and my son where it's like that is the grounding force that allows me to go deep into the frontier and then come back. So it's really home base for me has been an incredible reminder of what an accelerant that is. So that I mean, that would be unique to me right now. Yeah, and it's really interesting because when things get really busy and we get really passionate or really intense about our career, or maybe we're training for something. It seems like time with our friends and family is one of the first things to kind of get disrespected. Well, yeah. And I ran into that problem early days, big time early days. And for me, which was, I was so immersed in what I was trying to understand and figure out and compelled and drawn to it, almost, almost obsessed by it, that I did lose my way. You know, I definitely lost my way with family and friends. And that part is, you know, there's a certain kind of haunt that comes with that, knowing that sacrifice. And then there is an acceptance like, yeah, that's actually, that's who I was. And part of me still is that those are the choices I made to pursue something to 
you know, right to the edges. So, yeah. So how do you pull yourself out of that? Because I have a five-month-old baby at home, and because of COVID and everything, my childcare plan has been different. And I'm very driven as well, and trying to think big picture of it's worth it to spend this extra time. I'm not giving up something. How have you done that? Well, there's no easy answer here because we are multidimensional, multifaceted as humans. And so the micro choices that we make are hopefully mapping up against the philosophy that you've developed, you know, and a philosophy is a fancy word. It seems so ivory tower, you know, but it's really just a word for the guiding principles in your life. And I think the way to think about it is, okay, if once you're really clear about the guiding principles, and then you're making micro choices to adjust according to what towards those, hopefully, and it's not like achievement sits outside of those, but it has to be nested inside of those guiding principles or it becomes like an achievement mindset only, which is just about the outcome, just about the external reward or recognition or whatever it might be. So that ends up becoming an empty meal. And it's that empty meal that is so unsatisfying. We don't leave a moment to moment experience feeling full in any respect. So it's a long way of me saying, I don't have answers for others, but I do know that there's some structure that sits underneath. And that structure is to really know your guiding principles in your life and then make micro choices against those so that you can be in alignment. And it's that alignment word that's way better. It's so much more powerful, so much bigger than balance, so much bigger to me than outcome for sure. And so that's how I'm doing it. And I've learned that, you know, there's this thought that high performance begins where health ends. And that has been something that has been true for us in, in the community of, let's call it world-class, world-leading performance, that that has been an, an assumption we've made for the last 20 years and before that, for sure. I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think that we are getting better at the conversation about mental wellness, about physical wellness, about life you know, choices. All that being said is that there is no substitute for this relentless, uncommon passion, prickly, scratchy approach to life to try to get right to the edges every day. Because if you're not on the edge, and I'm talking about the edge of capacity, when you're not on the edge, you're really not growing at a fast clip. And so I wish I could just wake up and say, okay, after breakfast, I'm going to the edge. It, it doesn't work that way. It just, it takes time. You know, it takes time to get into those frames. And you would recognize that from a physical standpoint that while mile one is kind of scratchy, you know, mile 15s tends to feel very different. And it takes time to get to mile 15, mile 20, mile whatever. And so that would be the analogy that holds true with the mental part as well. And so it's a deep focus. It doesn't take that long, but it's a committed deep focus to get into the nuances. Yeah. And like being on that edge and staying on that edge and balancing that, not even using balancing, but penduluming that with rest is a really difficult thing for many people. And people recognizing that rest is part of the work. And something I learned really important last year, maybe it was two years ago, was about mental fatigue and how that affects physical performance and how not only do you need to rest your body, but you also need to learn how to rest your mind. Oh, w without a doubt. So there's there's big rocks to get the container when it comes to recovery. And then there's you know also things to rest your mind during waking moments as well. And so that's more about efficiency than call it rest. But let's talk about the big, one of the big rocks to get in the container is sleep. And just because you're getting eight hours of sleep, I mean, we're better at understanding the science of sleep now than we were even five years ago, but certainly 20 years ago. And just because you're getting eight hours sleep doesn't mean you're getting the right sleep. And there's different phases of sleep. You know, there's REM and non-REM as a small example here. And, and your audience recognizes is that REM sleep is really about restoration of memory. It's a consolidation of information. It's more about the mental part of recovery than the physical. Now, they all go hand in hand. But the non-REM sleep is where we're getting that physical sense of vibrance in the morning. And without technology, you have really very little idea how much REM and non-REM sleep that you're getting. And so that in of itself can be you know, a, a really important bit of information, let alone like, okay, am I waking up and sleeping at the same time? Is my room 68 to 65 degrees, somewhere in that range? Research keep finding that that's somewhere ideal for most people. 
And, you know, is it dark enough? You know, and there's some research that wearing an eye mask or like something that blocks out light is actually an accelerant for many people. And so like you can get all that stuff down. But then if you're not getting REM or non-REM or know the difference between the two, it's actually you know, it's a bit of a futile game there. So technology is a nice little system to understand the feedback loops for recovery. And that's only the big rock to get in the container at night. Right. I'm not talking about even the daytime stuff. And certainly we can talk about that. And something that I wanted to bring up was talking about confidence and how it relates to rest, because it actually does take confidence to take the time to let yourself rest. And it takes confidence to not overtrain. And it takes confidence to, at the start of a race, let everybody go and ride your own pace and not get caught up in everything. And you speak a lot about confidence and optimism and mental toughness. And what advice do you have for people who don't feel very confident whenever it pertains to something coming up, like an event. Oh, okay, cool. Well, let's just talk about that. Maybe I can just tell you a story is that it was going into the Rio Olympics and I was working with two teams. And at the beginning of the quad, so the Olympics, there's a four-year training cycle. For some people, it's been, you know, they've got, they've been on two quads. And so they've been in that circle or cycle for a while. But let's just say at the beginning of the season, it's a four-year experience training. And you never really know if you're going to make the team or not. So there's a lot of uncertainty. And uh, the two teams that I was working with at the Rio games were women's beach volleyball, one of those two teams, and then uh, the indoor women's volleyball as well. And so there's two ways to get at the games. And so this is almost like day one where we're sitting in a room and we're saying, okay, how do we want to think about the games? Okay, there's one or two ways that I'm familiar with. It's that it's the biggest, craziest, wildest, like the most dramatic show on earth when it comes to sport because the spectacle that it is. Or it's another game. The court is the same distance. The net is the same size. The ball is the same weight. The penalties are called the same way. Like there's no extra like, I don't know, snipers up in the rafters that are shooting at people if you make a mistake. Like it's the same thing. And so we have to make an informed decision. Which way do you want to go? And so there, we're sitting there. There's probably 30 gals, best in the world. Uh, the U.S. is one of the best teams in the world. And they're looking around at each other like, we haven't made this decision before. Like, okay, how do we want to do it? And so it's a, a healthy debate because you can be right in both. It is the wildest, most amazing competitive environment in the world because of media. That's why. So you've got international flavor, but that happens at world championships too. But you've got this fan base, this incredible media machine that sits underneath the Olympics that is different than anything that I've ever seen, less the Super Bowl. It's, it's pretty close. So you compare that to, what are, no, when we're on the court, it's the same, absolutely the same conditions. And so if I pause there, what would you choose? I would choose just pretending that it's like any other game because I would feel less pressure. Mm-hmm. So that's actually what the team decided, but they didn't use the word pretend. They didn't want to pretend. <laughs> they wanted to <laughs> concretely choose like, okay, I'm getting after it in this way, which is it's the same fricking conditions. And I'll be damned if I'm going to let cameras take me out of the game. I'm going to be damned if I'm going to let people watching get inside my, you know, my mental game. Now forget about it. So let's go after, let's train, let's get this transference for the way that we practice into the way that we compete. And we can only imagine, we can't replicate in any true fashion the Olympic Games. So let's just train to find an ideal mindset, big note, and then compete to find the ideal mindset. Okay. And so that was the decision we made. So we're training that way for four years. We get to the games and one of the gals leans over to one of the other gals, it's warm-ups. And she goes, so we're talking about our activation, our arousal level is the scientific term. So our activation. And to oversimplify your arousal system in your body, we just call it like one to 10. 10 is like, I'm way too jacked up. I'm too jittery. I'm just, I feel like I'm gonna throw up. Like I got too much juice, you know? And then one is like, man, I can't get up at all. Like I can't even Ah, kind of yawning for a different reason. Sometimes people yawn because they're nervous and this is yawning because I'm bored. And a five is the sweet spot. And all of this is in the this Audible original that Coach Carol and I wrote together. I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. But so we're there, we're back to the games and one gal leans over to the other and says, what's your number? 
<laughs> and she said, she looked back at the, her friend, you know, and they're both starters. And she said, frickin' 150. I'm a, and there's like 10 is the scale. One to 10 is the scale. And, and, and so she looked like big eyes and she goes, I looked at, everything was good. And then I looked down and I saw the Olympic rings under my feet. And I thought, oh my God, this is the Olympic games. And I, da, 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 and, you know, like in the spin started happening. I'm so glad you asked me the question because I'm kind of a mess. And now she's starting to laugh a little bit because they've got this, you know, where you at type of thing. And so then the, the other guy that asked the question leaned over. She goes, yeah, I feel that too. And so it was this moment like, yeah, okay, it is different. And then they said, hey, listen, let's go find our five. So there's no doubt that the pretending, that's why I wanted to pick up on your word. That uh -huh. It's like, it's got to be an all-in commitment. And even when it was an all-in commitment for four years, they looked over at each other like, oh my God, it's the Olympics <laughs> and here I am. And so, which is awesome. It's great. But then how are you going to actually go about it? And so what's great about this story is that they had mental skills and tools that they had practiced for four years to find a five. And again, a five is this sweet spot between focus and intensity, you know? And so there's this relaxed, calm space. You know, it's a really rare intersection, deep focus, high intensity, and a relaxation. And those are, as you would recognize, those are kind of the, the precepts for an ideal mindset. Because if you're scattered in your mind and you're too jacked up and you lack that inner fire, that intensity, you can't find your ideal mindset. It's like you just can't even get your arms around it because there's this big distracting noise in there, which is like, man, my hands are rattling. My chest is thumping. I got to go to the bathroom again. You know, like that's a, just a physiological response as you would recognize to being nervous. So I share that story because even when you do the kind of deepest work about it, sometimes there's surprises. And that's what makes competition so fun is that it's the unfolding, unpredictable, unknown, but you are practiced about it. Okay. I didn't answer your question on confidence. You ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Can I, I go I'm, another level? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So confidence. Confidence is the time-sensitive appraisal. It's a fancy psychological term, appraisal. What does that mean? It, just like an appraiser says, oh, I think, I think your house is worth this much money. So it's a psychological concept that is time sensitive where you're making an appraisal between the perceived external demands, what you think the external demands are, and matched up against your internal skills. Okay. You determine the demands and you determine your skills. So if you're accurate with the external demands are really high, like this is, a, it's on, right? And it's a high standard margin of mistakes, margins of victory are narrow sliced. That if you get into that kind of space, which is accurate maybe, but you don't know how to appraise your internal skills, that's where we have confidence problems. So that's a massive accelerant to anxiety or worry or something else. And so it is a skill. Confidence is a skill. We can train it. And you train it by being aware of how you're appraising the external, how you're appraising your internal, and then finding ways to challenge both of them. And if you do that on a regular basis, you got something. And the only place confidence comes from is self-talk, what you say to yourself. That's kind of the keyhole to confidence is what do you say to yourself? And if you're faking it, it's going to get found out. You know, you got to be real about it. Yeah, the most powerful voice, I, I always say this to myself, the most powerful voice in your life is the one inside of your head. I'm nodding my head. Yes, it is. And it's the coach and the critic that lives within is uh, that relationship. You know, T.S. Eliot said something beautiful long ago, one of our you know, great thinkers, and he says, at any given moment in time, I'm a standing war within myself. I'm a standing civil war within myself. And it doesn't have to always be that way, but in those moments where it does feel like there's this incredible critical nature, you know, that voice is critical and judging and worried and intolerant or scratchy in some kind of way, having the skills of knowing how to recognize that and then get out of it are incredibly important. You know, to work with it is incredibly important. And that's the game inside the game, really. So in terms of self-criticism and self-judgment, because those are things that our internal voice says to us, Sometimes self-criticism, if it's constructive, can be something that helps us grow and helps us get better. But then there's a line where it actually starts making you feel worse and starts breeding anxiety. 
And also there's a cognitive bias with how we actually think about ourselves. Like, are we actually being honest with ourselves, And are we actually seeing ourselves for what we're actually doing instead of this lens that maybe we're wearing? So how can we be more honest with ourselves? Is it, do we have to work with a professional to do that? Good question. No, and yes. <laughs> so let, let's just talk about some of the mechanics and I'll get to the answer about a professional is that becoming aware of the way you speak to yourself is only your responsibility. Nobody can do it for you. Awareness is a separate skill. And so training the skill of awareness is a parallel path that sits underneath anything that you want to do for adjusting well or applying a skill to the mental part of the game. If you're not aware, well, then it's just kind of luck if you got if you said the right thing at the right time. Now, one of the challenges is that how do you become more aware? Well, there's three ways that I'm familiar with it from a research standpoint or from a science standpoint. One is mindfulness. It's right at tier zero for becoming more aware. The second is journaling and writing, you know, because it there's a forcing function there. And the third is conversations with wise men and women. So that could be a sports psychologist or somebody that has been down the path, a, a, you know, a wise coach or somebody. It could be somebody that's down the path or not. You know, it could be your training partner. But if they've never been down the path, they're just trying to figure it out with you. So you don't need to have somebody, but you would need the other two for sure. And what I've come to learn, and as a trained sports psychologist, I'm biased because I've dedicated my whole life efforts towards being in relationships with people that want to explore their potential. And here's what I hear over and over again, is that it's not this concrete, but it, this is a, a summary, is that I kind of knew this stuff, but now it's really clear what I can do. And so once you know yourself a little bit better and there's a self-discovery mechanism and somebody that you're in that conversation with is helping to for you to know yourself better and they've also been into the thin herd on the path that you're on the, the frontier of the path and for me for example i'm coming back with insights like hey there's a trap door over there if you you know keep marching at this pace like just know, you know, or there's a, a little thin path here that you're coming up again and it's going to widen in a little bit, but make sure you don't fall off the, the cliff here, you know, or whatever the analogy might be. And it's not more of like a, the relationship is not a doomsday, you know, danger, illumination of danger. It's more like, okay, let me be more concrete. You and I were trying to get to New York and you've been to New York before and we're trying to get there from the West Coast, you know, to the East Coast and we're traveling together by foot and you've tracked it 15 times. You're going to know what to do over the Rockies, probably better than I am. You're going to know what to do in the desert, probably better than I am. You're going to know we're in Kansas. It's really flat for a long time. We're only halfway there, you know, and if I've never been there, there's no context. And so that's the advantage of being in relationship with wise men and women is that they give you context. They help you go deeper. They ask more questions than say and tell. And then they can, if you're trained as a psychologist, if you're w with one of those folks, then they can give you the tools and say, okay, here's a couple tools to play with. And what about online courses? Yeah, how about it? I've invested in that. So online courses are, it depends. So one of the things for that I've taken a lot of online courses, try to learn, it's part of a continuing education thing that we have to do as psychologists. And some of them fall really flat. And it feels like it's a DMV compliance. It's like a information dump. And then the idea that you're going to go from information to application is really weak. Like that chasm is too deep. So Coach Carroll is the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And he and I built a business together to do just that, to try to bridge this gap between how your mind works, a self-discovery process, what are the mental skills to be able to train your mind, and then to do it where there's some accountability, there's practice, and in moments of vulnerability. And so vulnerability requires some courage and risk taking. So what we've done is there's like thousands of people that sign up in the course, and then we call that down to put you in a group of 12 people. And inside of that small group of 12 people, we also have an Olympian who has success on the world stage. And they've also been trained by our, our process on mental skills and they're in there with you. And so you got, 
you go through exercises about like how confidence works or how arousal regulation works or how to develop your philosophy and you're doing it with 12 other people. So there's a, this little bit of intimacy. Not, it's not too much because if you don't want to say something, you don't have to say something. I should say, say, if you don't want to write something in the experience, you don't have to write, write anything. But then you got some accountability from an Olympian slash mindset coach that's in there going, hey, if you don't want to post it to the group, no problem, send it to me, you know, and, and I'll kick your ass about it, you know, and, and we'll have some fun with it. And so we feel really good about the work that we've done there to go from knowledge and information to actual application of training mental skills. So I want to ask about confidence and vulnerability, because it seems to me that, well, for me personally, being more vulnerable, especially in public, makes me feel more confident because there's an acceptance piece of I'm able to be myself 100% or share things that have been difficult for me so that you can see yourself in my story. And then also I can feel loved and accepted no matter what. But to be able to share and be vulnerable, it requires more of a, a high open personality. So which one comes first? It's mm, a good question. There's, there's a cultural aspect to it. There's a biological genetic aspect to it as well. And I don't think it's a first or second necessarily, but I like the way that you're thinking about it because they are interrelated and there is this dynamic interplay between the two. And so here's what it, the net net of it is this, whether there's a genetic predisposition to be open, you know, whether there's a personality predisposition to be open. And that's actually one of the big five personality traits, openness to experiences that kind of closely rubs up against what we're talking about. Or there's skills that you've developed. It, the net net is this. Do I trust? So it's not necessarily confidence. Do I trust that no matter what is about to take place, that I'll be okay and I'll figure it out? So that that is a deeper construct than confidence. Confidence is this time thin slice, time sensitive appraisal. Do I have the skills to say the thing? And if if you go underneath of it, if you don't trust yourself that you can figure it out, whatever, if it goes the worst you could possibly imagine, if it goes that way and you can't figure it out because you don't trust yourself to do just that, then you should not probably take the risk. Okay. Or if you want to say, wait a minute, I need to get better at risk taking because I don't know if I'll be able to figure out. I haven't played the risk game enough. And I'm not talking about dangerous risk at this conversation. I'm talking about emotional risk, which can be dangerous. It can be ill-advised too. So that's why it's like having a community of people and like a sports psych or somebody in your community that you can bounce things off of. Like, hey, let me tell you about this group I'm working with and or uh, it's this business unit I'm in and they keep asking about these types of questions and I'm holding back. And then to process that, like, should you? I don't know. If you're with sharks, ah, you got to make sure you can swim really well, you know, or maybe you're the shark and, you know, like, I don't know, but... So there's a game inside the game inside of this, which is, and I don't want to say game like it's a, it's futile, but it's like there are levels to it. And I know I didn't give you a crisp answer, but the real thing is about trust. And the only way that we can build trust is by doing difficult things. And when you do something difficult, at the end of it, you say, ah, I can figure stuff out, you know? And so it's a kind of interlooping undulation of the environment, your internal skills and your ability to trust that you'll be able to figure it out. And so, I mean, I'm bullish on taking risk. You know, I'm really bullish. But I say that with all the respect to the men and women who have been in my life that have taken re risks and it, it hasn't worked out. I just have a deep respect for those men and women. And so it doesn't mean it's going to work out for you. You know, things, people are suffering right now. And I say that because the mental health issues are incredible right now for people with the pandemic that we're struggling with, the new level right now of awareness of racial injustice, with the chaos between our country and the, the politics that are played, like there's real suffering. I'm talking about like shelter and safety and, you know, deep, dark, depressive places that, and high anxiety that people are in. So I was just saying that, I know it's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but taking risk, I just don't want to miss the note that um, when you're vulnerable, it's a beautiful place and it's also very dangerous. And so I say that because 
we are a bit like lobsters. <laughs> you know, we don't have this exoskeleton shell, but we can stay in our shell metaphorically and not grow by not taking the risk. But lobsters need to recognize like the distance between the shell. First, they have to feel crowded in the shell that they're in. Second, they have to find another shell to go to. They have to recognize the threat from deshelling from the small shell and scurrying across, you know, or running across to get to the bigger shell. All of that requires a pretty intelligent, sophisticated approach to growth. So I don't take this growth thing lightly. And that's why community is so important, you know, whether it's at, at home and or your partners in the businesses that you're in, whether it's sport or otherwise. Yeah, there's so much I could say about that. Like Angela Duckworth's work on grit has been criticized because it's like, well, this is for privileged people. And what about the people who are really struggling? And then that kind of goes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So like, can you work on confidence and grit and all these things if your basic needs aren't being met? It's a great question. Super thoughtful question is that I would say some of the grittiest people. So let's deconstruct grit for just a moment. And this is to support Angela's position, if I can, for just a moment, play that role, is that uh, some of the grittiest people are those that don't have very much. So if you deconstruct grit, there's three main components, passion, perseverance for a long-term goal. So I think right now of an athlete I worked with, not currently, single mom, she's an athlete, three kids, and she didn't have very much. And she was an Olympic athlete at the time. Everything was on the line for every kind of roster competition, roster filling competition. And she might be the most resourceful person I know. Single income, parenting three kids, trying to make an Olympic team. And I don't know if you know this, but most Olympians go into the games somewhere around $150,000 in debt. And so I get, I, I'm going to get on a soapbox for a moment because we get to watch whatever country that you're part of. We get to watch and kind of feel really good about the American or the whatever country that somebody's from, their experience. And But in America, they're about 150K in debt. And we feel really good about ourselves. And they have they've risked everything, you know, and they're in, they're in debt for it. So I'm not saying cry me a river for them, but if you've got some means, like get a little money to the NGB, the national governing body that of the sport you love the most. Okay, all that being said is that she might be the most passionate, the most resourceful, persevering, clarity of long-term goal person I know. So I'm supporting Angela by saying, no, this is not a privilege thing. If you want to understand the mechanisms of going the distance towards your potential, you need all three of those. And you might say, no, I'm distracted by shelter and food and safety and security, Maslow's kind of lower or more primary needs, I should say, not lower. Okay, great. Well, then be passionate about those. And so, and as you get those things sorted, then we move up into more artistic ways of uh, expressing. And so that's kind of how the intersection between those two work, I think. Yeah. And then I'm not sure if you, you probably are, but the book, The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor, um, he kind of mm-hmm. goes through a bunch of the positive psychology research. And one of the chapters or topics was about post-traumatic growth and how people mm-hmm. who go through really difficult things often come out to do amazing things because they realize that they can and that they're more capable. How does that all play into talking about confidence and trusting yourself and doing hard things. Oh, you're in the deep stuff here. I love it. So, okay, let's just take a look at trauma. Nobody's getting through this world without trauma. Let's just kind of see if you can nod your head to that. And it might be trauma with a small T or trauma with a big T. But we're not escaping this life as we know it without something or a series of things that are traumatic taking place. If that's the case, you might have already experienced the only trauma you're going to have in your life or not. You know, likely you're going to have many more small traumas in your life, heartbreaks or whatever they might be. And so I think it's really important to get at, to get skilled at dealing with trauma, small T or big T. Another word for trauma is adversity. Okay. Now, if we're taking a look at PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, just you and I could go through the same exact experience. And you and I could have very different experiences after. 
So just because you and I witnessed or experienced the same thing doesn't mean we're going to have the same outcome. So we do some research about what are those differences. Well, there's a lot of preceding type of stuff that your life and my life are very different. The way that your body processes, your brain really processes this type of emotionally charging event, it might be very different than mine. And so if I over, were to oversimplify the brain, that there's three main components. There's like that brainstem stuff, there's the emotional stuff, and the thinking stuff. It's not this simple. And if I go through the experience and most people go, oh, that's, man, are you okay? And you go through the same experience, but your brainstem didn't go into this kind of survival mode and mine did, I'm gonna have this kind of stuck experience where each time I smell or see or feel or sense that I'm getting close to something like that in the future, let's call it a car crash, you know, and like people died or, you know, something horrific like that, that, that when I smell that rubber thing or I hear a certain screech because it's locked into my brainstem, my survival mechanism, my brainstem that doesn't involve thinking, it's pure survival stuff, that my brain's job is to figure out how to survive and it's going to go into a fight, flight, freeze, or submit experience. Where yours is like, oh no, I've got lots of experience with screeches because I grew up go-karting and you know I'm, I'm very comfortable with those sounds and I heard them all the time. And actually my dad was in the military and um, we actually talked about life and death and the difference between birth and death and life da, 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 and like there's lots of different ways that you've experienced it. We're gonna have very different experiences. It doesn't mean you're better or stronger. It's just as I haven't had the chance to work it out yet. My brainstem did its job and it said, hey, this was heavy. And so we're gonna lock it down and to protect you from something like this happening in the future. So post-traumatic stress disorder is really not about, the name is not right, it's really an avoidance of re-trauma. Really that's what it is. If, we could, if I could rename it, I'd say it's the syndrome, if you will, is an, it's avoiding being re-traumatized, like an ART type of thing. Now, so that being said, your path and my path are different you could naturally go, oh, okay, well, this was kind of, oh, it's kind of heavy, but it wasn't so brainstemmy type of thing. Well, what could, and, but it was important enough that you think about how you could do something with it. Well, maybe you call that post-traumatic growth, but I don't fully, I call that like somebody who is a learner and is aware and want to do something based on their experiences. For me, going through something super heavy and it feels like I'm clamping down on life, for me to work through that, there is an opportunity then to be able to experience PTG, post-traumatic growth. And so it's less researched, it's less talked about, and it is 100% available. And that part gets me super fired up about like, okay, that's right, we gotta get to the edges. Now that's a real, I mean, that's a crazy kind of wild edge, you know, but we gotta get to the edges to get to this radical transformation arc. Some of the most haunting experiences are people that have been through war. And some of the most beautiful experiences are what they do with that, you know, those horrors that they experienced. And so that kind of transformation is, it's available to all of us and it takes some real work. Okay, so let's go back to confidence being tied to being able to trust yourself and being able to have put yourself out there. You've done difficult things. Well, let's keep it light and say, okay, well, I've done XYZ event. I've signed up for 500 mile mountain bike races. I've done well. Well, now all of a sudden I'm not doing well anymore and I'm not performing well, or I keep quitting. And then you start losing that trust with yourself. Now, would you say that you've, lo you've lost that confidence or is that something else? And can you rebuild it? Oh yeah, both can be rebuilt for sure. And I, I guess I don't know based on your scenario, if it's confidence or trust. So confidence would mm -hmm. be like, I'm not, it's like, again, it's thin slicing. So it's thinking about your next race. I'm not sure that I can have the skills to get that done. Trust would be, I'm not sure I can handle if it doesn't work out well, hmm. right? So I'm going to hold back. I'm going to play it safe and small. So those are the, be the nuances between the two. And they are different constructs. They're, they're closely related. They can hmm. feel kind of like the same, but if you double click under there, which were you imagining was the case for the person you're describing? Uh, I would say the trust part. Yeah, yeah. So if you don't trust that you can handle another loss, and there might be real reasons why this is heavier now, because if you get another loss, maybe your sponsors drop, maybe, 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 then it feels like there's more on the line. Well, 
then you know what? Then your brain is saying, hey, the consequences and risk are too high for many people. Some people's brains, they get that kind of stuff and they like it. They love it. That's why they actually procrastinate because they like that sense of pressure. They like that sense of like adrenaline that comes with like, I've got to get it done right here. I do some of my best thinking and doing, you know, when I just kind of jam everything in at the last minute, they actually quite like it. So, and you too can like it wherever you are on the spectrum, you too can like it. I'm, smiling. I'm not suggesting, <laughs> I'm not suggesting procrastination is like uh, ideal, but there are reasons why it can be great. I'm smiling because when it comes to writing, and I'm sure that you've had this experience as well, like it seems like with writing or anything like artistic, not having a deadline makes it really hard. But when you have that deadline, you procrastinate and then all of a sudden you're under the gun and now like you're doing it because the deadline's coming right up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because you're <laughs> artificially creating, you know, some good old adrenaline and good chemicals that will support that kind of stimulating experience. So I want to talk about like extrinsic validation for your self-belief. And I might be throwing around terms, not using them properly. So call me out and tell me if I am. But an example would be, I'll just keep it simple in mountain biking. Say there's like a big technical section with a lot of rocks or drops and you see it and you think to yourself, and I, I go through this because I'm always trying to expand my skills. Well, I know I have the skills to do it, but I don't really believe I can do it. I'm afraid, like, I don't know. So I need to see somebody else do it first. Or if my husband says, yeah, you can do it, then I'll just go do it. But if nobody's there and I'm not like, I know that I've done the work to get ready for it, but there's a huge risk. If you, if you mess up, you could risk getting hurt really, really badly there. So if you don't believe that you can do it, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. So like how much of this confidence or self-belief needs to be extrinsic versus intrinsic? Good question. For the long game, intrinsic, you know, as a predominant or prime mover for the long game and having people around you. So this is the external that can show you and can model and can give you some persuasion. It's totally cool. You know, that's the community that I want to be in too. Now I can't, if you get into the, like the almost the lazy game of like needing that, it's just too, it's too inconsistent. But having that as a mechanism is awesome. That's what tribes are about. And it's also what Albert Bandura studied, you know, in his self-efficacy model is that when you watch somebody else do it, it gives you a calibrating experience. It's called vicarious experiences. And so that's really important. The second is verbal persuasion what you just described, there's like five factors for self-efficacy. And eff efficacy is a fancy word for power, but power is not quite right because it's got this weird connotation to it. But self-efficacy is like, no, I, I have like this volitional ability inside of me to go for stuff, right? To be bold. And there's a sense of power that comes with that. And so those two are totally cool. And so if you have people that really know what you're capable of, awesome. But if they don't know, and it's the first ride you've been with them, and they barely know how to keep themselves together, and they're just trying to get you to go because they want to go eat lunch and that, you know, like whatever the, the scenario is, those aren't the right people. And it might get you to do it, but it also increases the risk, you know, 10x because they don't have a good appraisal mechanism. And this is something I've thought about a lot in terms of sports, because I'm an individual sports athlete and I haven't played a team sport since I was a kid. And then team sports automatically means that you have community, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a good community. Like in your Audible original Compete to Create, you guys talk about building culture and building culture within that community so that you can help one another with confidence or bringing you back to a, a level five activation. So if people are an individual sport athlete and they don't have that that culture and that team around them, how can they build their own? Okay, so nobody does it alone. Even though you're in an individual sport, you likely have somebody that is part of your community. You know, it could be a partner at home that you talk about it. It could be someone you schedule stuff with. It could be a mechanic. Like mm -hmm. you're in it with somebody. For the most part, 99 point whatever percent of people, nobody does this alone unless you're this bizarre kind of really cool, I don't know, pioneer in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest that, that hasn't seen people for years. Like that's so rare though. So you do have a community and being purposeful with that community is really important for those that want a small community, like two, three people on the inner circle there. And so is your question how to build culture or is, is there something else that I'm missing? 
It's like, how do you build a culture around you when you don't have a team? A team. Okay. I mean, a team that like. But you all, have people. You have people. You have, you have people. Yeah. You don't have yeah. like a team like you would on like a football team or a volleyball right, team. Yeah. But you still have like a team, but it's really different. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's just being intentional about it. And it's really what we're talking about is a bit esoteric because it really strips down to the relationship. And so even if it's one other person, like what is the relationship with the person that you want to have? And is it supportive? Is it challenging? And I need a bit of both for me. And so I want the relationships, call it team, but I want relationships that get me, they understand me, they know how to support me, poke me, push me, challenge me, look at me sideways, tell me no, tell me yes. You know, like I want all of that. And so it's being intentional about those relationships. But what I mean by being intentional is that we have to invest in the relationship for it to be there in a sturdy way for us. And part of that investment, this is why, you know, the Compete to Create Audible original and or the course, part of that mechanism is to get to know your philosophy. So they don't have to guess. They don't have to wonder what your guiding principles are. They don't have to wonder what your North Star is. And you don't have to wonder what theirs is. And so when you syncopate, like I flat out know what my wife's philosophy is. You know, I know her North Star. And so when something is, I'm in a funky mood or she's resourced, you know, in a way that she's, you know, hitting the button faster than I am, like, you know, like, okay, hold on. That's right. It's coming at her best. It's coming from this philosophical position and that North Star that we're working toward. And so it just is a massive accelerant. But until you know that, until you know your philosophy, how can you expect someone else to know it? And yeah. if they don't know it and you don't know it, how are you really going to be in relationships that are going to stand up when it's hard? Because there's too much trying to sort stuff out. And one more thing, if I share this with you, is that here's what I've seen over and over and over again with teams. And I know you're talking about individuals, but it's the same thing, right? Is that the beginning of a season or beginning of a relationship, people go, yeah, let's get after it. And they're like, yeah, let's lock arms. Okay, we're going to take that hill, whatever the hill is, the championship, the whatever, whatever. And then as soon as it gets hard, people unlock their arms. Because it's your brain is trying to save your ass. Your brain is not trying to save their ass. And when you get scared or tired or fatigued or frustrated, you will unlock your arm. Unless you know that there is someone that you've locked arms with that is going to be there flat out for you. And you've made that same commitment to them. But the only really way, the only deep way to do that, not the only real way, the only deep way to do that is when you know the deep parts of that person. And that's why philosophy is so important. And that's why, you know, North Star and our vision of what you're collectively working on is so important as well. And what if people on the team have different philosophies? Like, I don't really know how NFL works with choosing how the teams are formed, but can you select based on their philosophy or do you just get all these guys because of their skill level and then you have to sort of mold so that the philosophies all kind of work together? No, the idea is for each person to uniquely be themselves and to know themselves so they can be consistent towards their truth. And you and I could have very different philosophies, but what we hang together is I know yours, you know mine, and we're agreeing on a shared North Star. So there's a shared vision and I recognize I need you and you need me. And then for that to happen, like to go deeper underneath of it is like, okay, well, what are you about? And that's what the philosophy is. Like, hey, listen, all I, cut to the chase. My thoughts, my words, and my actions are bouncing up against these core principles. And if I'm doing a shitty job at it, you gotta, I'm trusting you're going to let me know. And so I'm telling you right now, here's my core principles. That's really a powerful thing. Because, you know, some people are about love and happiness and this, that, and the other. And some people are about flat out, no, that's not what it is for me. You know, I have zero tolerance for holding hands and like thinking everything's going to be okay. Like, uh-uh. And so that's fine. We just got to know each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we recognize this from a business standpoint is that diversity wins. Diversity of ideas, of life experiences, of, you know, race and complexion and gender and the whole thing. Like diversity wins because you get to see it from so many different angles. It's multifaceted, multi-experiential. And so your question that you asked me is really about diversity and having as many flavors of the ice cream that you can have because it's one, it's more fun. 
Two, it's going to be more dimensional and increases our chances of doing something special together. And in the team dynamic, whether it be in a professional work environment or in sports, there seems to be certain personalities that have a difficult time taking responsibility for their actions. And they'll try and say it's somebody else's fault. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 So how do you create, to use an airy fairy word, how do you create harmony in those situations where the whole team is pulling in one way, but then the one person raises their hand and says, well, I didn't do it. It wasn't me. When really, like, if they just took responsibility and were either humble or vulnerable or now I'm now I'm using some of the words are, are confident enough to say it was me mm-hmm. and I take responsibility for that. How do you actually create that environment and culture where somebody can do that, especially when that's not their first inclination? So, okay, great question. Let's separate out psychological personality disorders and <laughs> from people that are just protecting themselves because some people are you know, they're struggling at such a level. We call it narcissistic personality disorder. I was going to say they're narcissism. <laughs> yeah. Like, so there's narcissistic tendencies. Then there's like a, a full-blown personality disorder. And people that have a full-blown personality disorder, you're not changing them. They're not changing. So, you know, you, you have to kind of know the person. And there's this lopsided thing that takes place for, let's call it extreme talent, that sometimes you get some other stuff that comes with it. You know, some other kind of personality, whether it's a full-blown disorder or it's just this oddities. And so it is when you have these lopsided type people, there's just like this real discernment that needs to take place. Like, can we work with that person? You're going to get some lopsided results, but you also get a lopsided, you know, relationships and culture. Now, all that being said, we're you and I are not really talking about that person, right? We're talking about the person that just finds it hard to take responsibility for blowing it. And really, the, what we're begging at is if there was better psychological safety, if there was better modeling of accountability, if there was better uh, group standard to not let somebody off the hook when they're pointing the finger and they have a way of doing it that still you might step on somebody's shoe, but still leave a shine that if you have that way about the the relationships, then it's totally possible. But you need leadership to model it. You need a set of assumptions, not just assumptions in the environment, but a set of principles that lead to clarity on how to handle difficult people or difficult scenarios and modeling first and being about on a consistent basis. And then you empower other people around you to say, well, if that leader wasn't here, how would he or she respond? Well, he'd probably say to the person or she would say to the person, hey, you know what? Why don't you like holster that finger you got out? You know, maybe there's humor in it. Maybe there's not. And so, you know, it's principles that are modeled. That's the easiest way to say the long winded narrative that I just got to principles that are modeled. Do you have time for one more question? Of course. Yeah. Thank you. Like, I love the thoughtfulness of your questions. Well, I, it was really funny when I was trying to narrow down what I wanted to talk about because I, I showed my husband it was I take notes on my phone in the notes app and it was lots of pages. So I barely even <laughs> skimmed the surface. The last question I want to ask you is about success. Now, everyone thinks about success differently. I attempted doing a TEDx talk in 2015 about success and my personal philosophy has changed over time to just help define success a little bit better. But some people look at success as accolades or like, what does a successful career look like? What does a successful life look like? And then earlier, we like really a lot earlier in this conversation, we talked about it's kind of like the I'll be happy when I achieve X and and putting all your happiness on what you achieve and calling that success. So like what for you personally, and also professionally, what do you think a healthy way of having a relationship with success is, and then being able to celebrate success too, because many people have a hard time, myself included, celebrating when we have, quote, achieved something. I think about success in a little bit more, less concrete, a little bit more imaginative. You know, like I could do the success stuff like, okay, so professionally, it's kind of got these concrete things. And then personally, it's these, but I do it in a little bit different way, which is has a little bit more of alignment, is I think about what is a living masterpiece? And so I'm looking for integration between what I do and who I am, wherever I am. And so it starts with who am I first? And then it moves to how do I do me? And then the third is, do I have the skills to do that in any environment? 
And so for me, like, if you'll just humor me a little bit, a living masterpiece for me is, it's like the pursuit and expression of applied insights and wisdom. And when those things are true and pure and beautiful, and they are captivating both of imagination and potential, that that to me is what a living masterpiece is. You know, it's the pursuit of and the expression of applied insights and wisdoms to be super concrete. And they capture the imagination in a really cool way. And so, you know, it's dynamic in nature. It's available to me in every moment. And it's multifaceted. It's an experience that is completely fluid with the present moment's unapologetic metronome of life, like the the now and the now and the now and the now. And it's a structure of of this way of living that is, for me, more interested in that and fulfillment and flourishment than quote unquote success. So the concrete idea of success is like, okay, X, X millions in the bank account, XX cars in the garage, XX whatever, and and then uh, be happy. I mean, it's so backwards to me. You know, it's just so backwards. And so I've learned from some of the most extraordinary thinkers and doers in the world, not only from the Finding Mastery podcast, but being in the environments and the amphitheater of risk with these men and women is that they are no longer trying to do more to be more. So I'm not talking about the five and 10 percenters of the world. I'm talking about the ones that have this wild levels of world leading abilities that long ago they have dropped the idea that they need to do something extraordinary to be extraordinary. So they said, listen, I'm just working on being in this moment in extraordinary ways. And whatever comes from that, whatever output that leaves, that's cool. You know, and I'm trying to have something that is pure and true and beautiful and amazing. And it comes first from being. And if you can't get into this present moment, like I was talking about that unapologetic metronome of the present moment, if you can't be on time with that metronome of time of the present experience, whew, I mean, you'll get some high performance, you could have success, but it's not an empty meal. It's just not what's completely available. So that's what I'm looking for. You know, this idea of a living masterpiece, which is available every moment. And so that's what I'm working on. I love that. And I think it's just so important to have conversations around what success means and that it doesn't have to be this. It's not a dollar figure. It's not an externally measured thing necessarily. It's living your life through having meaning, fulfillment and meaningful relationships because that at the end of the day is what everybody is craving and successful quote successful people who have all the accolades and the money they might feel empty because they don't have those things so i think our society needs to change how we talk about the word success and tie it to different things yeah and you know also let's create space for folks that are like listen i don't i don't know what you're talking about i'm trying <laughs> to get paid you know that's fine you know that's totally cool too and we want to create space for that and also say, okay, I would say if that's the case, what is it for? What's the payment for? What's the money for? And getting clear on that, I think, actually rounds it out in a pretty healthy way. And so, yeah, I'm not I'm not like disappointed or shaming or critiquing people that want to get paid and want to have a big house on the big hill or whatever. That's fine. But for what aim? And like, what are you giving yeah. up to get that? Yeah. I mean, what yeah. what, what is that about? And so... I think that's totally cool. And then that is why I think this, this experience that we're talking about is the inner life. You know, what is the, what's the quality of one's inner life? And would you bet that if the quality of your inner life was on point, that your external life would be equally on point? Like, and so I never heard it so eloquent as when I sat down with, this is on the Finding Mastery podcast. I don't know the episode number with John Donovan. He was the CEO at the time of AT&T. And he's responsible, like about 300,000 people report up to him. I mean, think about that. That is like four NFL stadiums. And so I, I talked to him about his inner, you know, the, how he aligns his inner life. And he says, you know, I first started, and this was, I think he said like 10, 12 years prior to the conversation uh, with mindfulness. And I gave it a go for like 10, 15 minutes. And um, didn't immediately kind of, there's no kind of this transformation. But then after a little bit of time, I realized that I was just a 
little bit more present. I was a little more efficient. And he said, so I doubled down, went to 30 minutes. I was even more efficient. I was more present. I was coming up with solutions faster. I was seeing the big picture and able to lock into the nuances. And so I doubled down and I did an hour a day. And he said, so I was doing a half hour meditation and then I moved it up to 45 minutes of meditation and 15 minutes of writing. And now he's added two hours before he leaves, you know, basically his bedroom where he's got some writing, some reading and some mindfulness. And he says, you know, it's not uncommon to have two to four hours on a regular basis where I invest in the internal, but I'm 10x more efficient on the external. And so if somebody that is managing 300,000 people and is at the helm of AT&T is investing on the internal life, and so are, I could go countless number of athletes that I've spent time with are doing the same, it's time that we really make that commitment. And so some of your folks have done that and I say, right on, stay with it now. And this is not a hack or shortcut or trick or something. It's not, it's none of that. It's a fundamental arrangement of one's life to grow. It's a fundamental commitment that you make to yourself to get better at getting better. And that's why I want to say thank you for having me on sharing, you know, this conversation with your community, because obviously you're switched on. They're likely working to be switched on or are already like fully in it. And um, I, I don't know, I think it's some of the more important conversations right now to have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I was really looking forward to this conversation. And where can people get more of you? Oh, yeah, cool. Thank you. I've been having a lot of fun on social media, which has been uh, fun for me. I'm new to it relatively. <laughs> and so Instagram, all, all the handles, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, it's all the same handle, which is Michael Gervais. And that's spelled G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And then uh, the eight-week online course is Compete to Create. Dot net. You can find out how to get involved there. And then the podcast is Finding Mastery. Yeah, so that's those are all the right places to come hang out and check out the good stuff that you know we're, we're trying to figure out and have fun doing. And so, and, and you know what I'd like to do for your community? I'd love to give away a course. Awesome. You know, if, yeah, if we could do something fun on social, which is, let's make it up right now. If they tag you and they tag me at Michael Gervais and they tag at Compete to Create, and let's let's just kind of leave it loose. Like anyone that does that within, you pick a date on the intro, right? Whenever it fits for you on the intro. And whoever can like just talk about why training the mind is so important for them right now. It's a $500 course and let's give it away to your folks. Awesome, I love it. We're doing it. I'll make yeah. sure I mention that in the intro if people don't make it to the end. <laughs> yeah. You should make it to up. the end, people. If you made it this far, we love you. <laughs> Thank you, yes, good. All right, cool, let's right. do it. Thanks. Okay, appreciate it. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Dr. Michael Gervais. Make sure that you're signed up for my free weekly newsletter, which is at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter to make sure you don't miss out whenever he offers a free entry giveaway to his Compete to Create eight-week online course. It sounds amazing, and I hope to do it someday as well. Everything we talked about is linked up in the show notes, and I also hope that you check out Dr. Gervais' Finding Mastery podcast. There's some really interesting guests on there and I always look forward to it every week. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for sharing the show with your friends and subscribing. And I'm with you on this journey of growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. <laughs>